a judge is expected to release the grand jury's full report that led to the indictment of former President Donald Trump and 18 others. It's Friday, September 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we'll take a look at the role climate change may be playing in this summer's extreme weather. Plus, many of the victims of Lahaina's fires lost not only their homes, but also their jobs. Now the unemployment crisis has spread to all of Maui. With the downturn in tourism, we're seeing kind of that trickle-down effect where more and more people are losing their jobs. Also this hour, we'll preview the New England Patriots season under new offensive coordinator Bill O'Brien. He's going to put Mac back there and say, read the defense before the ball is snapped. And that's really a strength of Mac's game. Partly sunny, near 90 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden arrives in New Delhi in a few hours to attend the Group of 20 summit. India holds the rotating G20 presidency this year, and India is looking to prove itself as a world leader. But Sushmita Patak reports in New Delhi some of the preparations have drawn criticism. New Delhi has gotten a makeover in recent weeks, with decorative lights and water fountains embellishing its streets. Posters about the G20 are on every corner. But as the city gears up to welcome world leaders, officials have evicted slum dwellers and removed hawkers and beggars from the streets. Green sheets pitched on wooden poles along key roads hide the homeless from view. This has prompted criticism from opposition parties and civil society groups who say India wants to be a voice for the global south but is hiding its own problems with poverty. The summit is also expected to inconvenience Delhi residents. Food delivery is barred in many parts, traffic is heavily restricted and dozens of trains and flights have been cancelled. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. Former Trump aide Peter Navarro has been convicted on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress. He was charged with defying a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. NPR's Dustin Joan reports Navarro could spend up to two years behind bars. It took less than four hours for a federal jury to issue a guilty verdict after only hearing from three witnesses, none of whom came from the defense. After the verdict was issued, Peter Navarro said he would be exonerated. I am willing to go to prison to settle this issue. I'm willing to do that, but I also know that the likelihood of me going to prison is relatively small because we are right on this issue. Navarro had tried to have the charges dismissed, citing executive privilege, but a judge ruled against that argument last week. He is the second former Trump aide to be convicted for failing to cooperate with a congressional subpoena. Dustin Jones, NPR News. Flash floods caused by unprecedented rain and downpours have caused widespread disruption in Hong Kong and in parts of southern China. We have more from the BBC's Celia Hatton. Hong Kong recorded its highest rainfall since records began, more than 15 centimetres in a single hour. Millions have been forced to shelter in Hong Kong and the Chinese mainland's neighbouring hub of Shenzhen. In Hong Kong, roads were turned to rivers, metro stations and shopping malls have been flooded with water. More than 80 people sought hospital treatment and several needed to be pulled from their cars. All schools have been closed and the authorities are urging employers to allow their staff to remain at home. The BBC's Celia Hatton reporting. You're listening 
to NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBOR in Boston. The MBTA lacked the training, experience, and guidance needed to properly maintain its subway system. That's according to a new independent report that investigated what led to system-wide slowdowns and safety issues earlier this year. The T also released its own internal report, which had similar findings. WBUR's Zeninjor and Wameka reports. The reports make clear there are major systemic issues at the T. The independent report found a lack of clarity about roles and responsibilities within the department that's responsible for track safety, and workers either misunderstood or failed to do their jobs. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng says he's focused on solutions. We still have a lot of work to do. I don't want to say we don't, both infrastructure-wise but also organizationally. This is about changing the culture. We've talked a lot about the safety culture, but we also talk about accountability responsibility. Eng says the T is expanding its maintenance staff, implementing more rigorous training standards, and improving quality control. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. There's a heat advisory in effect for most of Massachusetts until 8 p.m. Temperatures are expected to reach near 90 in the Boston area. They could feel as high as 98 degrees because of humidity. Many schools across the state are closed or sending kids home early because of the heat. School is canceled today in Lowell. Students are going home early in Worcester, Andover, and Haverhill. Members of the National Guard will soon be deployed to shelters in Massachusetts to help with the influx of migrants. State officials say up to 250 National Guard members will be sent to help out at hotels being used to shelter migrant families. Some of them are expected to be active as early as next week. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum resumes normal hours today. That's after closing early yesterday to avoid protests planned by climate activists. Museum officials say they canceled Thursday evening hours to protect their collection from potential damage. Activists have targeted museums in recent years, vandalizing artwork to draw attention to climate change. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. The Portacalis family is headed to Greece from director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast, only in theaters September 8th. The Sox start a three-game series against the Baltimore Orioles tonight at Fenway. Tanner Houck gets the start for the Sox. And the NFL season kicked off last night with the Detroit Lions knocking off the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs 21-20. The Patriots open their season Sunday against the Philadelphia Eagles in Foxborough. Patchy fog this morning, then mostly cloudy with a high near 90. A heat advisory remains in effect for much of the state until 8 p.m. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 72. Tomorrow, mostly overcast with a high near 86. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Sunday, mostly cloudy with a high around 82, and showers are likely. It's 74 degrees in Boston. You're You're starting your day with WBUR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Coming up, we'll hear from our reporter Brian Mann, who toured one of Ukraine's embattled nuclear power plants. These power plants provide roughly half of the country's electricity. But first, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is no stranger to the political spotlight. The Republican is running for president for a second time after falling short in 2016. Christie has said he believes the criminal indictments of Donald Trump disqualified qualify the former president from holding further office. It's not a popular position in the Trump-dominated GOP. And that's not the only way that Christie is distancing himself from the rest of his party. He recently sat down with Susan Davis and Tamara Keith of the NPR Politics Podcast. Here's some of that conversation. First off, what I say disqualifies him are not the indictments themselves. It's the conduct that underlies those indictments. So to be clear, I think it's the conduct of the man that disqualifies him from being president much more than the judgment of any individual prosecutor. I've said publicly, too, that I think I would not have brought either the New York case or the Atlanta case against Donald Trump. But the two federal cases, I believe, are absolutely appropriate cases to have been brought. He is entitled to the presumption of innocence, as everybody in this country is. But I think particularly uh, the classified documents case is one that he will have a very, very hard time either legally or factually getting out from under. There is a growing number of lawmakers in Congress, particularly in the House, that believe that they already have enough of a case to bring impeachment charges against the president for his son's business dealings. Do you think that case is there? Do you think that an impeachment case should be brought against the president? Not at this point. But I do think that it's necessary, given what we've seen, for there to be oversight by the House. If that oversight that gives us evidence that the president was somehow involved, and he's been very clear about saying, as has his spokespeople, that he's had no involvement at any time with his son's business. Now, you know, whether those phone calls that we've heard about amount to enough to impeach, I, I would doubt, but I need to see the rest of the evidence. So no, I don't think there's a case at the moment, but I do think there's enough smoke that the DOJ should be looking into it. And David Weiss, a special counsel, should be looking into that. And the House should be providing appropriate oversight to get the facts out. If Congress sends to your desk any legislation that would put restrictions on abortion access, would you sign it into law? As I've said on this issue, I think we fought as conservatives for 50 years to say this is not a federal issue, it's a state issue. And so first, I hope that what happens over the course of the next 16 months or so is that each of the states and their people weigh in on this issue of abortion, whether it's through referenda or whether it's through actions by the legislature and the governor. Because this is such a live issue and you want to be president of the United States, I'm hoping that we could get you to Tell us if you think there are any limits that should be in place. Should it be a 15-week ban? Should it be a six-week ban? Um, As you say, the nominee of the party sets the agenda. So what do you think the agenda should be? What I just said, that the state should make the determination. Are there any states that have limits that you think are too strict or too lenient? Sure. I think Oklahoma having no abortion available except to save the life of the mother is too strict. And I think New Jersey allowing abortions up to the ninth month of pregnancy is too lenient. 
You are the only Republican in the race who opposes bans on specialized health care for transgender youth. And we're wondering what shaped your view on this. Well, I thought what shaped my view is I'm a conservative Republican who doesn't want the government telling mothers and fathers how to treat their children. No one loves my four children more than I do and my wife does. And no one knows what's better for our children than we do. Certainly no governor sitting in a state capitol knows better how my children should be raised than I do. And I believe that's a conservative Republican position. And I'm not a big government Republican. I think any type of government intervention of that kind between parents and their children is wrong. And that's why I oppose it. That full interview with Chris Christie will be on today's episode of the NPR Politics Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to turn now to Ukraine, which is doing something no nation has ever tried before. It's operating a nuclear power industry in the middle of a war. One nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia has already been caught up in the fighting. Experts say as Russia launches more missile and drone attacks, other reactors could be vulnerable. NPR's Brian Mann reports. In a room deep inside the Melnitsky nuclear power plant, five men sit at control panels surrounded by flashing red and green lights. They're going through the step-by-step checklist for firing up a nuclear reactor. This is a demonstration for journalists. Keeping these facilities operating is a point of pride for Ukrainians. Officials here say the actual restart of one of the Soviet-era reactors is happening in another part of the plant after routine maintenance and refueling. Watching from a corner is a burly, balding man named Petro Kotyan. He's head of Ukraine's national atomic energy company, Aneroatom. He says running facilities like this in the middle of a war... Never such cases happened before, actually. Most of the attention since Russia's full-scale invasion has focused on Zaporizhia, a reactor complex in eastern Ukraine that's been occupied by Russian troops for more than a year. Kotin says the situation there is dire, with safety systems forced at times to operate on backup diesel generators. It was full blackout at the plot, and it is like the first stage of Fukushima scenario, when you do not have external power. It is awful situation. In a country still haunted by the disaster at Chernobyl, the threat of an event like Fukushima is galling. Kotin says what the Russians are doing is crazy. This is the first time when actually the country who actually possessed nuclear power came to another country with such developed nuclear industry and just captured the plant, the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, says this is mine, then just dist- almost destroy everything. Officials with the International Atomic Energy Agency have inspectors at Zaporizhia. On Friday, the IAEA issued a statement warning that Russian troops have refused to let their team inspect key parts of the complex to determine whether mines or other explosives have been placed in sensitive areas. Edwin Lyman is a physicist and director of the Nuclear Power Safety Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Unfortunately, the Zaporizhia situation has shown how vulnerable nuclear power plants can be in a country at at war and under attack. Lyman says by operating its other nuclear reactors around the country, even those far from the front lines, Ukraine is taking a serious risk. These plants were not designed to be hardened against military attack. And even though there is some capability to protect their airspace from missiles and drones. It's not perfect. 
Ukrainian officials say they have no choice but to keep these plants operating. They provide roughly half the country's electricity. Even with the reactors running, the country saw widespread power outages last winter. Back at the Hmelnitsky plant, Petro Kotyan says the country is doing everything it can to minimize risks by improving its air defenses. We constantly increase the protection of nuclear power plant. This is a task for our militaries and the special anti-drone equipment. It's a job for the military's anti-drone equipment, he says. But Kotyan acknowledged as long as Russian missile and drone strikes continue, his country's reactors will face unprecedented and unpredictable peril. Brian Mann, NPR News, Melnitsky, Ukraine. In New Mexico, an annual film competition showcases the works of rural and Native American middle and high school students. The prizes, if you win, include equipment grants for the schools and scholarships for the students. Megan James is a Navajo teen who won both high school drama and high school grand prize awards last spring for her short film, Deprived. We need to fight for that representation to be accurately and respectfully represented in the media as the people we are. In her film, a young man is overwhelmed by a steady barrage of distressing news stories. The character is played by her brother, but the idea came from her own experience. One morning, I I logged on to Twitter, <laughs> and I just saw like someone had died, like a famous artist. And then I go to uh, my sister's room, and the news is playing in her room as well. And a shooting had just happened. And I went to my mom's room. Basically, it, it was on a news channel saying that our world is like ending due to climate change. <laughs> Deprived was one of 17 films from young Native American filmmakers at the 2023 festival. And I'm at such a low point. I tried, like, I really tried to distract myself. It just made everything worse. Jaya Daniels won Best Documentary for her personal storytelling. Daniels grew up as one of the few Black people in Los Alamos. My film is called Sister of the Circle, Black Girl's Journey to the Land of Enchantment. It's basically a film just to showcase that Black girls are all diverse, you know, we're all different. Daniels grew up as one of the few Black people in Los Alamos. I was often stereotyped as like aggressive, violent, too loud. Either too loud or not loud enough. It was in between one of those two. She hopes people who sometimes feel out of place connect with her film. I can watch my documentary know that it's somewhere inspiring someone in New Mexico or not in New Mexico. I like having that impact on someone. The latest round of Film Prize Junior New Mexico launched last night at the National Hispanic Cultural Center in Albuquerque. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we get an update on how residents of Maui are faring a month after the devastating wildfires there. The island is facing an economic crisis with many people out of work. It's 719. 
I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And the half god of rainfall at ART, a new basketball epic fusing Greek mythology and Yoruba spirituality, not playing. amrep.org. Neither side militarily is making much ground, and so it's hard to see militarily the conflict ending soon. That's one analyst's current view of the Ukraine war. But to historians, it also sounds a lot like the Korean War. Could the Korean armistice agreement signed 70 years ago serve as a model for Russia and Ukraine now? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly overcast and humid today with a high near 90. A heat advisory remains in effect through tonight. Still overcast tonight as temperatures fall to the low 70s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a high in the mid-80s. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. More rain possible overnight and during the day on Sunday. Otherwise, we'll end the weekend with a cloudy day with a high in the low 80s. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters September 15th. Tickets available now. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Daniel Estrin. TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. In Israel, the weekend has already started. I can already say Shabbat Shalom because in Israel, saying Shabbat Shalom, which means have a good Sabbath, is equivalent to saying have a good weekend. Adina Sussman grew up in California and lives in Tel Aviv. And she's a big name in the Jewish food world. She's co-authored over a dozen cookbooks. Her newest is called Shabbat. It's that time Jews mark around the world from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown when the hectic week comes to a standstill. And you pause and rest and eat, which requires some preparation. Adina Sussman's Shabbat prep starts with a coffee at her favorite spot, Cafe Tamati. This is Mickey. Mickey's the owner. They kiss each other's cheeks. She tells him she's leaving for the U.S. for a few months for her book tour. And she wipes away a tear. I think leaving Israel at a really critical time, it feels weird to be leaving now because of all the political situation also. I just, I don't want to, even though it's so hard, I I don't want to be away. I want to be here when things happen. Um, Israel's in the middle of a big uh, national conflict. The far-right religious coalition is overhauling the judiciary, driving hundreds of thousands of Israelis and Adina Sussman to protest on Saturday nights when Shabbat ends. I don't think that Nikki, who's one of my very close friends, and I see eye to eye on politics, but 
we have a lot of things that we have in common that we love and share. A respect and love for hospitality, a joy of giving to other people, um, creating community. Which happens anytime people share a meal together. But she says it's especially true of Shabbat. It's a dinner party with depth. It's just the idea of putting a marker down to signify the end of the week and the beginning of the weekend. And I think everyone needs reasons to, you need excuses now to slow down in the world that we live in. And marking that sacred time set apart, it helps to have a good meal. We hit the market to shop. People ask, like, what's the ideal Shabbat menu? And I say, it's whatever you can handle that week. Shabbat meets you where you're at. Like, it's not about, I need to make eight fresh salads. I need to make challah from scratch. So, like, we're going to make a chicken soup today, but it's a faster chicken soup that still has a lot of flavor. Okay, let's go shopping. For the soup, we buy two chicken breasts and veggies. And, of course, a Shabbat staple, braided loaves of challah. She calls it a unifying bread here. Those who are Jewish have challah on the table, and I suspect a lot who aren't as well, because challah is delicious. I've seen Palestinians in East Jerusalem sell and buy challah. I'm not surprised. I have a Palestinian friend who makes schnitzel for her kids all the time. So there's a lot of that cultural and culinary and commercial coexistence that just kind of happens, like, simmering every day that we don't hear about. Her cookbook includes Shabbat recipes from around the world and her own family's heritage, Eastern European Ashkenazi cuisine. We walk back to her apartment to make dilly chicken and rice soup. Dilly meaning lots of dill. I love dill. And to me, dill is one of the hallmark herbs of Ashkenazi cooking. Can you talk about the meaning of chicken soup for Shabbat, or really in the Jewish culinary tradition? You know, I think chicken soup is one of those examples of cucina povera. You know, you had a chicken and you wanted to get the most out of it that you could, so you would create almost a meal out of this pot of soup. You know, broth is so flavorful and nourishing and delicious. We call it the Jewish penicillin. Um, I like my chicken soup to have a lot of body and flavor. You know, I like it to be like substantial in a way. She salts and peppers the skinless, boneless chicken breasts and sears them in a pot with olive oil. She says the trick is not to futz with them. Let the chicken stay there for 10 minutes before you flip it just once. For Jews whose grandparents and great-grandparents came from Eastern Europe, the smell alone, the dill, the browning of the chicken, is a time machine. Now I'm going to flip the chicken. That looks amazing. That's exactly what I'm going for. Oh, yeah. Nice and brown and sort of textured. You see that in the pan, there's this golden pond. The sticky brown bits that stick to the pot, those come off and coat the chopped leeks you throw in later. You remove the chicken and then make your soup with the leeks, plus carrots, celery, garlic, a little jalapeno, and then the flavor secret, the chicken broth you've had stashed in your freezer. And once that's defrosted, I'm going to add the rice. There's something so comforting about rice in soup, right? Totally. Alexa, play Chicken Soup with Rice by Carol King. In January, it's so nice While slipping on the sliding ice Just sip hot chicken soup with rice Sipping once, sipping twice Sipping chicken soup with rice She shreds the chicken into bite-sized strips. Into the pot they go. The soup is ready in about an hour, start to finish. I wanted to make this on purpose so you could see the love that can go into something that's considered fast, but also just has like a real old world and delicious flavor. Can you talk about 
what Shabbat was like growing up for you? Shabbat was this focal point of my family's quality time, social life, food life. And once we lit candles on Friday, time really did stop. And we would go through a lot of the rituals of making a blessing over the wine and making a blessing over the challah and singing a special song to my mother called The Woman of Valor, a very traditional song called Eshet Chayil. Um, what was the melody that you guys sang? So it's all about all the domestic tasks that a woman does around the house. So sort of like praising the woman for being a domestic goddess. And yeah, we would just have spirited conversations, delicious food, usually a chicken soup. I don't observe a lot of the religious rituals of Shabbat anymore, but I took away from it the idea of carving out a weekly time that is distinguished from the week. All right. Dilly, chicken soup. And rice. And rice. Mm. Comforting, kind of light, light, fresh. Flavorful, deeply flavorful. Shabbat in a bowl. Shabbat in a bowl. <laughs> Adina Sussman is the author of the new cookbook, Shabbat, Recipes and Rituals, From My Table to Yours. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBWAR's Morning Edition. I talked to ESPN's Mike Reese to get a preview as the Patriots open their season this weekend. It's 7.29. WBUR supporters include Leslie University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Leslie University. Invest in your passion at leslie.edu. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is on his way to India for the start of the G20 summit. The president is expected to meet with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi ahead of the talks in New Delhi. The president's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, spoke to reporters en route to the meetings. We have a significant number of issues that we need to deal with uh, with India, both issues that present opportunities for substantial cooperation in our mutual interest and issues where we need to work through differences in perspectives. Those issues include trade, climate change, artificial intelligence, and China's growing influence in the region. China's President Xi Jinping is not taking part in the summit. FBI Director Christopher Wray says he'd like to see tech companies work more closely with the federal government on cybersecurity. If you look at our exposure as a country, Something like 80% of our critical infrastructure is in the hands of the private sector. It's our critical infrastructure the bad guys are after. Ray was speaking in Washington last night at an event called Spy Chat. One of those tech companies, Apple, has just issued a security update it says will patch vulnerabilities in the software system used in its devices. 
Wall Street futures are lower this morning. Dow futures are off 65 points. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new report finds that the Boston City Councilor who crashed her car into a house in Jamaica Plain was not going twice the speed limit when she crashed. The report was commissioned by City Councilor Kendra Laura herself. It shows she was only going 27 miles per hour. Investigators tell the Boston Globe the officer who filed the police report must have done his calculations incorrectly. That officer found Laura was driving at least 53 miles per hour at the time of the crash in June. The crash sent Laura's son to the hospital for stitches. The food manufacturer Pocky is pulling an extremely spicy tortilla chip from supermarket shelves. The move comes after a Worcester teenager died after eating the chip for a viral challenge. The boy's cause of death has not yet been determined, but the family is blaming the food. A vigil for the 14-year-old is planned for tonight in Worcester. Pediatric health care is consolidating in Massachusetts. That's according to a new report. The study's authors say the trend could result in higher costs for patients. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. The Massachusetts Health Policy Commission's report describes two parallel trends. Many smaller community hospitals have closed their pediatric beds, while bigger hospitals have expanded. Now, two hospitals, Boston Children's and Mass General, control about half of the market. Sasha Hayes-Rusnoff of the Health Policy Commission says this concentration of care means less choice for patients. That means that patients have fewer options to seek care at lower-priced providers. That drives up spending overall and can lead to affordability challenges for patients. Overall, the report says hospital stays for children are declining as medical care advances. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. A retired doctor arrested on drug and gun charges aboard a luxury yacht in Nantucket is due back in court next month. A district court judge in Plymouth set bail yesterday for Scott Anthony Burke at $200,000. Burke was arrested earlier this month after police responded to an emergency call on his yacht. He's charged with unlawful firearms possession and trafficking cocaine. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. Enchanting landscapes and magical new fall experiences await less than an hour from Boston. NEBG.org. The Detroit Lions beat the Kansas City Chiefs 21-20 last night in the NFL season opener. The Pats start their season Sunday afternoon at Gillette against the Philadelphia Eagles. Tonight, the Red Sox begin a three-game series against the Baltimore Orioles, First pitch at Fenway is set for 7:10. Near 90 today, but it'll feel much hotter with the humidity. A heat advisory remains in effect through tonight. It'll be mostly cloudy. Tonight it falls to the low 70s. Tomorrow still mostly overcast with temperatures in the mid 80s. Showers and thunderstorms are possible. We may see heavy rain overnight and showers and thunderstorms are likely on Sunday. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dementia Society of America, committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-Dementia.org. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, 
focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Good morning. After a wildfire last month destroyed the Hawaiian town of Lahaina on Maui, activists and celebrities took to social media to tell tourists to stay away from the island. Well, people listened. And now Maui is facing an economic crisis. Here's NPR's Adrian Florido. When the fire came, Yariet Olea and her two daughters lost their apartment, all their possessions, and their two cats. They barely escaped themselves. And even right now, I, I, I don't believe it yet. <laughs> Before the fire, Olea worked as a busser at a popular Asian fusion restaurant on Lahaina's waterfront. Nothing happened to the restaurant. It was one of the lucky ones, but they're not reopening soon. So, yeah, I lost my job, too. For Olea and her daughters, the weeks since the fire have been a blur of filling out applications for federal and local aid, visiting food distribution sites, moving into a temporary apartment south of Lahaina paid for by a nonprofit. Now, the chaos is quieting, but a nagging worry is settling in. Olea needs to work. She's a single mom. A few days ago, she called a friend. I told my friend, like, uh, if you know someone who needs a housekeeper, I'm up for it. Like, I need to make money. Olea is from Mexico. She moved to Lahaina 22 years ago to work as a hotel housekeeper. For most of those years, she has worked three jobs. Usually work on Maui is easy to find. But since the fire, tourism to the island has plummeted and jobs have vanished. I'm making phone calls, applying online, but... No, <laughs> no, nobody. For now, she's relying on donations and help from nonprofits to get by. In just a few weeks, the economic fallout from the fire in one small town, Lahaina, has spread to all of Maui. Hotels and restaurants sit empty. They've laid off staff or slashed hours. The week before the fire, 130 people on the island filed unemployment claims. The week after the fire, 4,500 people did. Thousands more have applied since. Those huge numbers, it's the reality. Sergio Alcubilla directs the Hawaii Workers' Center, which advocates for the working class. A lot of people, um, it may not have been because their um, restaurant or um, place of business burned down, but it's just with the downturn in tourism, you know, we're seeing kind of that trickle-down effect where more and more people are, um, you know, losing their jobs. For people directly affected by the fire, there's some federal aid, but that is a sliver of Maui's population. For everyone else, there's just unemployment insurance. And Alcubilla says for a lot of them, benefits have not arrived. These workers still need to take care of their families. They still need to pay their rent. And they're going to rely on unemployment insurance. And right now it is failing them. The Hawaii Workers Center recently wrote to Governor Josh Green asking him to speed up unemployment payments and to take other steps to help workers. This isn't the first time Maui has paid the price for its heavy reliance on tourism. The aftermath and effects of COVID have definitely already changed people's mindsets and where they basically need to be employed. Kahelani Polaris is with the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, which has been working to train Hawaiians for non-tourism jobs. Since the fire on Maui, they're rushing to prepare people here for jobs that'll be needed to rebuild. Hazmat cleanup, construction, big rig drivers. What we want to provide is the ability to actively participate in the recovery efforts and help rebuild their own communities instead of having to go out of state to bring people in to do those jobs. 
Even so, everyone knows Maui's jobs crisis won't improve until tourists come back. Yariet Olea, the single mom who lost her job, knows it'll be a while before she finds another one. She has picked up a few hours cleaning the houses of people who want to help her. You can just feel like how helpful people is, generous, how kind, this aloha feeling. Olea knows she could leave Hawaii and find work. But that aloha feeling is why she and her daughters have decided to stay and hope the economy bounces back so they can help rebuild Lahaina. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Maui. The U.S. is seeing a surge in efforts to ban or restrict books in schools. One school board in North Carolina recently voted to temporarily remove a book about the history of racism in the U.S. from high school classrooms. And as WHQR's Rachel Keith reports, a lone parent was behind the move. Katie Gates was upset that her daughter's teacher assigned the book Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You in an AP Language and Composition class. She told the school board at a packed public hearing the book is anti-American. They brainwashed the reader that all the white people are racist and are to blame for everything wrong in America. How do you think these claims make everyday average white students required to read this book feel? Gates was demanding the removal of the book from the curriculum. Stamped is a frequent target for book bans across the country. Assistant Superintendent Don Brinson tried to defend the use of the book to no avail. Ms. Gates' claim that Stamped is anti-American is not a fact. It is her opinion. Gates had tried unsuccessfully to convince two curriculum committees to remove the book. Her last resort? The school board. Last November, Republicans swept the elections, taking control from Democrats. Those GOP candidates campaigned on parental rights and stopping what they call liberal indoctrination in schools. Enough Republicans agreed with Gates, who welcomed the decision to pull the book. I feel like there's accountability. To me, that's huge. Katie Gates is an active member of the local GOP. But Republicans aren't always in lockstep in removing controversial texts from the nation's classrooms. A national NPR Ipsos poll conducted in May of this year shows that half of Republicans oppose book bans. So does Stephanie Craybill. She was the only Republican on the school board to oppose the book's removal. I've been a Republican since I was 18 years old. I believe that the Republican Party in some areas of our country has morphed away from just conservative, moderate values. New Hanover County Schools serves suburban Wilmington, and its student population is 60 percent white. What worries North Carolina NAACP President Deborah Dix Maxwell is that the school board is ignoring important black voices. So it's going to make teachers who decide the curriculum to pick the safe route instead of the route that will envelop more critical thinking. You just diminished it by your vote. As for the teacher, Kelly Kidwell, who had required the book, she now has to choose another text that the board said needs to be, quote, balanced. She says she's disappointed that one parent can have so much control over her classroom. I feel a little powerless because I feel like this is just the first of many dominoes to fall before the tides shift again. But I will continue to teach to the best of my ability and do right by the students I have in my classroom right now. 
The North Carolina NAACP is now considering a lawsuit similar to the one in South Carolina where parents are challenging a school board that also voted to remove stamped from classrooms. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Keith in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Friday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, we look at the implications of the announcement that the U.S. will send depleted uranium munitions to Ukraine. The hot and humid conditions continue today with temperatures near 90 that, given the humidity, will feel like the upper 90s. It'll be mostly cloudy. Tonight, still overcast and temperatures fall to the low 70s. Saturday, mostly cloudy and mid to upper 80s with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Sunday, mostly cloudy with thunderstorms likely and those may produce heavy rain. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. A Boston-based marketing and sales software company is the latest to lay off employees. Drift is cutting about 100 workers. 30 of those were based in the state. 300 employees are left. The company tells the Boston Business Journal the cuts are part of a new business strategy. A Boston-based quantum computing startup is merging with a special acquisition company. Zapata AI will be merging with Andretti Acquisition. The deal values Zapata at $200 million. The company says being publicly traded will allow them to get more funding. Danish biopharmaceutical company Novo Nordisk is teaming up with the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. The group says it'll be working on new drugs for diabetes and cardiac fibrosis. Novo Nordisk is in the process of shifting its U.S. base to the greater Boston area. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The New England Patriots kick off their season this Sunday afternoon as they host the Philadelphia Eagles. Last season, the Pats ended with an 8-9 and record and out of the playoff picture. For a preview of what we can expect this season, we're joined by ESPN's Mike Reese. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Rupa. So the Patriots finished in third place in the AFC East last year. What did they do in the offseason to try and turn that around? Well, Rupa, the most significant change they made was on their offensive coaching staff. They brought in Bill O'Brien as their offensive coordinator. And the hope is that his experience coordinating and leading offenses over the last decade um, leads to a better offensive performance for the Patriots than last year, and specifically with their quarterback, Mac Jones, who enters his third season. 
Okay, and speaking of Mac Jones, the Pats have made it clear with their roster moves that he is the man at quarterback. What do you think of that decision? It was clearly the the, the decision that was the obvious one to me, Rupa, as I watched every single one of the Patriots' practices. Mac is the best fit for what Bill O'Brien wants to do offensively, and that's to spread the ball around to a variety of pass catchers and really put a lot on the quarterback from an intellectual standpoint. So he's going to put Mac back there and say, read the defense before the ball is snapped and know where you're going with the ball. And that's really a strength of Mac's game. He's a thinking man's quarterback, if you will. Mm. So Devin McCourty is gone this season. What does the Pats defense look like without him? Well, Rupa, it's a great point that you bring up because Devin McCourty was not just an excellent free safety, sort of patrolling the deep part of the field, making sure that the Patriots didn't give up big plays, but he was also one of the greatest leaders that they've had in Bill Belichick's 24 years as head coach. So they're filling not just a void on the field, but also a leadership void in the locker room and off the field. It's interesting to me that Devin's actually the only player on defense that they lost from last season. And Rupa, they were a really good defense last season. So the hope is that they can fill that void, which is hard to do with one player. They're going to need multiple players to fill it, but then also take a step forward from the the pretty solid performance that they had last year on defense and be even better this year. Hmm. So the Pats will honor longtime quarterback Tom Brady at Sunday's game. How do you see that going? Well, it will be a spectacle. Something tells me there'll be something unforgettable that fans and those that are there at the stadium that on Sunday will experience. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it will be more than run of the mill. I'm pretty sure of that. All right. And then I can't let you go without asking you for your predictions How do you think the season is going to go, and how do you think it's going to end for the Pats? When the odds makers set a win total, they say that seven and a half is sort of the the target, which would mean another, you know, seven and ten season or an eight and nine season. I think I would say they're going to be a little bit above that and on the fringe of the playoffs. And if they can get in, anything's possible. But this is a lot different conversation than we've had in the past years when Tom Brady was the quarterback when. It wasn't necessarily if they would make the playoffs. It was how far they would actually go in the playoffs. ESPN's Mike Reese sounding cautiously optimistic. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rupa. You're with WBMR. Coming up at 8.20, we look at the link between climate change and the many incidents of extreme weather around the world this summer. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And the Freedom Trail Foundation experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. TheFreedomTrail.org. 
Melissa Etheridge is a queer rock icon, but she's also endured significant loss over decades in the public eye, and she's all the wiser for it. Ultimately, it's not about what everyone thinks about you. There's the only person judging you is yourself, and that's what can do the most damage. I'm Juana Summers, a new memoir from Melissa Etheridge on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The U.S. says it'll send depleted uranium weapons that are considered radioactive to Ukraine. Hurricane Lee has strengthened into a Category 5 storm and is expected to remain a major hurricane into next week. And a judge in Fulton County is expected to release the grand jury's full report that led to the indictment of former President Donald Trump. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Mostly cloudy today, near 90. With the high humidity, it'll feel like the upper 90s. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Daniel Estrin. President Biden will be traveling to Vietnam this weekend, where the leaders of the two former enemies are expected to announce a deepening of diplomatic and economic ties. It's a visit that comes as Washington tries to counter China's growing assertiveness in the South China Sea and beyond. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports. The city of Da Nang in central Vietnam has a lovely beach that fronts the South China Sea, It's where U.S. combat troops first came ashore in 1965, when the U.S. and Communist Vietnam were in the early stages of what Vietnam calls the American War. It's a popular tourist destination and a busy port as well, where I met fisherman Ho Nok Phuc back in March 2018 during the first U.S. carrier visit to Vietnam since the war ended. And even then, he told me fishermen like him we're getting bullied by Chinese vessels all the time. When we tried to fish, they would come and hit us or use water cannon against us. Sometimes they damaged our boats, so we'd have to run away. That's pretty much a constant, fishermen say. But in the past year, China's also resumed harassing Vietnam's oil and gas exploration efforts in its exclusive economic zone. And that may have finally convinced Hanoi to agree to an upgrade in relations the U.S. has sought for years. So the news that they actually leapfrog to a comprehensive strategic partnership now is absolutely a big surprise for many observers of Vietnamese politics. Nguyen Kak Zhang is a visiting fellow at the ISEAS think tank in Singapore. I think Vietnam is increasing worry about China's aggression on the South China Sea And they think that it is a good time to send a signal to Beijing that Vietnam is not alone. And then there's the economic argument to upgrade the relationship, he says, as Vietnam attempts to transition from a low-value-added and labor-intensive economy to a more advanced, tech-driven one. And here, Hanoi and Washington's interests converge. The great power rivalry between China and the U.S. causes the United States to seek a coalition with countries that are committed to denying China's regional hegemony. And also, the United States is seeking to fence its supply chain. 
That's Alexander Vuving from the Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies in Honolulu. Both these strategies would convert into a very big U.S. carrot for Vietnam because the U.S. wants to promote Vietnam as a new China uh, in terms of manufacturing power is an important manufacturing note in the U.S. supply chain. Semiconductor production is one area American companies are especially interested in. But this upgraded partnership doesn't mean Vietnam is picking sides in the rivalry between the U.S. and China, says Carl Thayer, professor emeritus at the University of New South Wales. Vietnam has a policy of four no's that won't change. No military alliances, no foreign bases, no combining with one country to act against a third party, and no first use of force. But despite the four no's, closer defense cooperation between the U.S. and Vietnam could still be in the offing. Thayer says Hanoi's main weapons supplier, Russia, is now toxic because of the war in Ukraine, and that Hanoi is now searching for alternatives. It held a major defense expo last year, which U.S. defense contractors attended. It plans another soon, and... Vietnam has a draft law before the National Assembly that would allow its private sector industries to form joint ventures with overseas foreign defense contractors, meaning America. And that would be a new avenue, would mean sales for the U.S. None of this, of course, will make China happy. But Vietnam is hoping its fellow communist neighbor won't be too unhappy. China remains Vietnam's largest trading partner, just as the U.S. remains Hanoi's biggest export market. And Hanoi would like to keep both on side. Carl Thayer. A Vietnamese diplomat with long service in America used an expression, the Goldilocks formula, and it's... We don't want relations between the U.S. and China to get too cold, angry. We don't want them to get too hot, like lovers. <laughs> we want them just right <laughs> so we can play off the, on those differences. And in the process, protect its autonomy while it tries to grow its economy. Michael Sullivan, NPR News. Toys, they haven't always been something all kids get to enjoy. But now toy makers are coming out with products that work for more kids, including differently abled children. David Hagenboo is a professor of marketing at Messiah University in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. For some of them, that light bulb is just kind of going off that it doesn't have to be any kind of a concession to go after a market that is underserved. For example, Lego now sells bricks with the little bumps arranged in Braille. They're designed to help kids with visual impairments learn Braille and encourage kids with unimpaired sight to play with them, too, for a new kind of learning experience. The reality is that Braille, just like learning print, it's all about how it's taught. That's the president of the National Federation of the Blind, Mark Riccobono. He says Braille isn't a language, it's a code. Kids love codes, right? We like to write secret messages and all sorts of things. So if we get sighted kids engaging with Braille, using it as a code, using it in fun and imaginative ways, it'll demystify Braille. Professor Hagenboo says incorporating touch also helps create lifelong fans. 
the more senses that can be involved for any of us as consumers, the more likely we are to remember a brand that we appreciate and might facilitate our finding of that brand. Lego includes instructions in Braille and audio for some playsets. It's also incorporated minifigures that look more diverse. One playset comes with more than 40 different heads featuring different skin tones and hairstyles. Mattel, meanwhile, has also given more of their Barbies different body types, including some that come with wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs. Hagen Boo says it reflects a mindset you find in other industries as well, to do good. They want to go above and beyond and do something for society that's going to make a lasting impact, going to move the needle in positive ways in our world and not just simply fulfill that basic exchange between business and consumer. The joys of toys for kids around the world of all different types. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Layla Falden. And I'm Daniel Estrin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists, icaboston.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The military in Mali says attacks by al-Qaeda-linked insurgents have killed 49 civilians and 15 soldiers. It's Friday, September 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. says it'll descend depleted uranium weapons that are still radioactive to Ukraine. Also this hour, it's now possible to suck carbon dioxide out of the sky and put it in the ground. Some in the oil industry see that as a green light to keep using fossil fuels. If we inject more carbon into the earth and somehow we get better returns from our oil and gas reserves, that's a win-win. Plus, activists are trying to protect immigrant families sheltering in Massachusetts hotels from neo-Nazi demonstrators. I don't doubt for one minute we're going to see the group again and maybe different groups. Mostly sunny and near 90 today with a heat advisory in effect. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The final report from the special grand jury in Georgia that investigated former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the state's election results is expected to be released today. NPR's Amy Held has our story. Now that the indictment has come down, the Fulton County judge says there's no longer any need to keep the report secret. The special grand jury finished it in December, spending seven months listening to some 75 witnesses and providing the evidence to the DA. Last month, a regular grand jury charged 19 people, including the former president plus attorney Rudy Giuliani and former chief of staff Mark Meadows, with a coordinated effort to pressure Georgia officials to overturn Trump's loss in the state. NPR's Amy Held reporting. President Biden arrives in India later today. He's there to attend the G20 summit. Biden is expected to hold several short meetings with other world leaders on the sidelines of the summit, including with India's prime minister. Among the global leaders arriving in India as well for the summit is the U.K. prime minister, Rishi Sunak. He is of Indian descent. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from London. 
India is the birthplace of Rishi Sunak's grandparents and of his wife. He's the first UK Prime Minister of Indian or Asian descent, a Punjabi Hindu whose parents were born in East Africa. 76 years after India won its independence from the UK, many Indians see it as poetic justice that the former colonial power is governed by an Indian. India's economy also recently surpassed the size of the UK's. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. In the U.S., the Florida Supreme Court will hear arguments today over the state's 15-week abortion ban. From member station WFSU, Regan McCarthy reports the outcome will decide whether the state's six-week ban takes effect. Abortion access advocates say they anticipate the court will uphold the ban and will overturn a 1989 finding that the state's constitution protects access to abortion. If that's the case, a six-week ban passed by lawmakers this year will go into effect. Dr. Nancy Statz says that ruling would go against popular opinion. Most people in this country believe very strongly that abortion is a private matter between a pregnant person and their physician, and that these things should not be legislated. Stats says no matter the court's decision, abortion rights advocates are working to get a measure enshrining abortion rights into the state constitution on the ballot in 2024. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee. A federal appeals court says the floating barriers in the Rio Grande can stay for now. They were placed by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who wants to stop migrants from crossing. Wednesday, a lower federal court judge had ordered them removed. He ruled they were deployed without proper federal authorization. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. There's a heat advisory in place until 8 p.m. for much of Massachusetts. Hot temperatures and high humidity could cause heat-related illness. Health officials are reminding people to stay hydrated, avoid strenuous activity during the middle of the day, and remain in air conditioning when possible. Alan Dunham is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Right now for greater Boston Metro, we're looking at highs in the upper 80s. But with the humidity and whatnot, it's going to feel more like the uh, mid-90s, so right around 95. The heat is causing some schools to cancel classes or send students home early. School is canceled today in Lowell. Students in Worcester, Lynn, and Haverhill will have a half day. MBTA employees lacked the training and experience to complete track maintenance effectively. That's according to a new report released by the transit agency yesterday. It found that those issues contributed to recent system-wide slowdowns and safety issues along train lines. T General Manager Phil Ang says the agency is expanding its maintenance staff and changing training standards to fix the issues. Beacon Hill lawmakers have been told that members of the National Guard will be deployed to shelters within days to help deal with the influx of migrants and the strain on the state's emergency shelter system. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll briefed lawmakers yesterday on the state of emergency declared by the governor. Cambridge State Representative Mike Connolly says the meeting had an urgent tone. Almost the sense of desperation from uh, communities that are feeling overwhelmed with uh, need in this time of ongoing housing emergency and are really looking to the state to help support and address those needs. Governor Healy activated up to 250 National Guard members to help at hotels that the state is using for shelters.
A Cambridge teenager has died after a serious motorcycle clash in late August. Cambridge police confirmed this week the 16-year-old succumbed to injuries sustained in the incident. An investigation into the crash is ongoing. No charges have been filed. A Massachusetts postal worker has pleaded guilty to stealing more than $18,000 from customers between 2019 and 2020. Prosecutors say 28-year-old Zeon Johnson of Saugus voided stamp purchases, then kept the money. He also rewrote money orders to pay himself. He's set to be sentenced later this year. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass TLC's Board Ready Boot Camp, now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org. Tanner Houck will be on the Hill tonight for the Sox as they begin a three-game series against the Baltimore Orioles. Game time is 7-10 at Fenway. In the NFL, the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs fell to the Detroit Lions 21-20 last night in the season opener. The Patriots start their season Sunday in Foxborough against the Philadelphia Eagles. Mostly cloudy with a high near 90 today. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 72. Tomorrow, mostly overcast with a high near 86. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Sunday, mostly cloudy again with a high around 82. And showers are likely. It's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. The Portocalis family is headed to Greece from director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast, only in theaters September 8th. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The U.S. has announced a new security package for Ukraine worth up to $175 million. And for the first time, the U.S. is sending anti-tank rounds containing depleted uranium. Russia has called the move inhumane. So what does this mean for the war effort? Dekshan Kasyanova, an expert on nuclear politics and a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research at the University at Albany, joins us now to discuss. Good morning. Good morning. Tagjan, I want to start with what exactly this weapon is. When a lot of people hear depleted uranium, it sounds like it might have potential health risks. That's something Mm -hmm. the International Atomic Energy Agency has warned about. If you could talk about what they do and what the potential risks are to people's health. Uh, Thank you. Let's start with the basics. So anti-tank rounds with depleted uranium, these are not nuclear or radioactive weapons. Mm -hmm. So what are they? And I'll try to explain in simple terms. So to produce nuclear fuel, either for power stations or nuclear weapons, the isotope composition of natural uranium, that's what can be found in the ground, must be changed. And this process is called enrichment. And so depleted uranium is a byproduct of this process. It's very dense, and that's why it works well as ammunition. In general, of course, uranium mining, anything to do with the fuel cycle, it has safety implications, especially if procedures are are not uh, taken care of. But it's important to remember that depleted uranium is considerably less radioactive than natural uranium. And what do you make of the decision by the U.S., which follows a similar move by the British earlier this year, to provide this type of weaponry to Ukraine? I think it's an important practical and symbolic action of support. Uh, Ukraine is losing people, both military and civilians, every day. So I think whatever can happen Ukraine right now should be provided to the extent possible. So I'm 
in support of uh, provision of these weapons, even though, of course, there are some safety implications that need to be kept in mind. These anti-tank weapons, what type of difference would they make in the battlefield right now? We know that Ukraine's in the middle of this grinding counteroffensive. I think they will make a huge difference, and that's why Russia is so upset. Armor-piercing rounds with depleted uranium, they're highly effective against Russian tanks because that's exactly, you know, for what they were developed during the Cold War. Um, so I think they will be very helpful for Ukraine's counteroffensive. So you mentioned that's why Russia is very angry about this. Of course, Russia is the invader in this war, but it has said that providing this weapon to Ukraine is, quote, a criminal act, that the U.S. providing this weaponry is, quote, inhumane. What do you make of Russia's reaction here? I think Russia's reaction and uh, all the arguments that it's making, it's an example of hypocrisy. Russia is destroying Ukrainian nature, blowing up its dams, mining Ukraine's land, torturing and killing civilians. And I think it's very important to point out that it's Russia that is creating nuclear and uh, radioactive risks. It engages in nuclear blackmail, saying that they will introduce tactical nuclear weapons. They're also occupying Europe's largest nuclear power plant. They put military inside of that plant. They mine the territory around the plant. That's directly increasing nuclear accident risks. That was Tagjan Kasyanova. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a summer of extremes. Dozens recently died in Brazil when a cyclone dropped more than 11 inches of rain in 24 hours. Greece has been dealing with severe flooding following deadly wildfires in the Nevada desert. People got stuck in the mud at the Burning Man Festival when torrential rain soaked the driest state in America. And much of the world has been baking in intense heat. What is going on? Michael Copley joins us from NPR's Climate Desk. Good morning. Good morning, Daniel. Let's start with the heat. This summer felt hotter than usual. Is that true? Well, you're right. It has been different. This summer was the hottest on record, with heat waves in places like the U.S., Europe, and Japan. So what we're seeing is that heat waves are happening more and more frequently, and the hot days are getting hotter. And that's mainly because we keep burning fossil fuels, which releases greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, trapping heat close to the Earth. But what's also happening right now is something called an El Nino. It's a natural weather pattern that happens periodically, and it's pushing up global temperatures. So that's amplifying the warming that we're getting from climate change. Okay, and does that warming have any connection to the extreme rainfall that we've been seeing in Brazil and Greece and other places? So what we know is that warmer air holds more moisture, and warmer water acts like fuel for hurricanes. So what we're seeing right now in Brazil, for example, where a cyclone has caused severe flooding, is the kind of extreme event that we can expect to happen more often as the planet gets hotter. That's according to Andrew Weaver. He's a professor of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria. This year, what we've seen is remarkable ocean temperatures worldwide. And what we're seeing then is a, a direct consequence of that is, you know, more energy being fed into the system. And when you look at the intense rain we've seen in Nevada, state officials say flooding is going to become more common there in the future. And that's because there are going to be more intense storms because hotter temperatures will mean less snow and more rain. Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't connected the dots before. So hot air causes more rain. Hot air also heats oceans and fuels hurricanes. Is that it? That's right. Is this the new normal? 
You know, when I spoke to Professor Weaver, what he says is we're not necessarily going to continue seeing record-breaking heat year after year, but there's every reason to believe we will keep breaking records in the future, especially during years with an El Nino weather pattern. What you're seeing, and you can see that in all the records globally, is that the lows aren't as low as they used to be, and the highs are higher than they used to be, and that will continue for it. Scientists say this pattern of extreme weather is going to continue until we stop emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Okay, now this is a hypothetical question because uh, we're nowhere near close to actually stopping greenhouse gas emissions. But let's say we stop them tomorrow. Would that stop this extreme weather? The reality is that carbon dioxide hangs around in the atmosphere for a long time, like hundreds of years. So we're going to be living with the consequences of the emissions we've already put into the atmosphere. So there's a lag. Oh, wow. But there's a much bigger problem. Humans keep putting more greenhouse gases up there. World leaders have already agreed we need to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. That's about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. If we can keep to that goal, it would stave off some of the most dire consequences. But the reality is we're on track to exceed that mark. So the first thing to do is to start cutting emissions. All right. NPR's Michael Copley. Thank you so much. Thanks, Daniel. It's been more than three years since the murder of George Floyd by police sparked massive protests in Minneapolis. Days of civil unrest caused millions of dollars of damages. In damages, now several black entrepreneurs are aiming to bring business owners of color back to one particularly hard-hit part of the city. They're revitalizing a historic retail building that was nearly lost to arson. From Minnesota Public Radio, Matt Sepik reports. In the days after a white policeman kneeled on George Floyd's neck, killing the 46-year-old black man, protests and civil disobedience gave way to three nights of rioting. Buildings along the commercial corridor of Lake Street, including the police station where former officer Derek Chauvin worked, were the arsonists' first targets. While they reduced many buildings to rubble, one century-old landmark still stands. Taylor Smikarova with the nonprofit developer Redesign Inc. says the Coliseum building, originally a department store with a third-floor ballroom, is ripe for revival. Its location on lake and proximity to all the activity in 2020 and the size of the building meant the opportunity for community to come back and reclaim it and fill it with new uses just could not be missed. Smikarova is among a group of black entrepreneurs who bought the property in 2021 to save it from the wrecking ball. Inside, the smell of soot and mold is fading as workers clean up debris, repair extensive smoke and water damage, and replace melted metal window frames. Janice Downing, another investor, plans to move her management consultancy there. She says the project's main purpose is to provide affordable retail office and restaurant space to business owners of color and indigenous entrepreneurs who were forced out of the neighborhood. This can be the place where people come and hang out, meet, work, gather. It is a place where people can say, that didn't get taken away. It's restored and it's ours. While Target and other deep-pocketed chain retailers on Lake Street bounced back quickly, many small businesses left altogether. Mama Sophia's, a Somali-American restaurant, is moving back to the Coliseum building's ground floor after three years down the street in temporary space, at least with the help of a crowdfunding campaign. Its neighbor will be Du Nord Social Spirits, among the nation's first black-owned distilleries. Other tenants include a barbershop and a nail salon. 
Downing says it was tricky to pull together the $29 million for the project, in part because some lenders were skeptical that leasing out low-cost, move-in-ready space to small businesses would prove financially viable. Loans and grants are part of the funding mix, so are historic preservation tax credits. Project architect Alicia Belton says that means that workers can't just gut the place. They have to save the building's original details, including the 1917 terrazzo floors. From an architectural standpoint, this is the most difficult project I've ever worked on. So everything that I thought I knew working with the historic tax credit rules has been really challenging. But I think that the end result will be beautiful. The women leading this project are finding that beauty in unexpected places, including a plaster wall that the fire sprinklers streaked with a pattern of soot. While others may have painted it over, development director Taylor Smikarva says when the Coliseum building reopens next year, that wall will remain as a permanent reminder of the latest chapter in the building's history, one marked by the pain of violence and the promise of a new beginning. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, on the last day of his trip to Ukraine, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken ventured out of the capital to get a look at how people are trying to rebuild and meet with Ukrainians who were held captive by Russians. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Neither side militarily is making much ground, and so it's hard to see militarily the conflict ending soon. That's one analyst's current view of the Ukraine war. But to historians, it also sounds a lot like the Korean War. Could the Korean armistice agreement signed 70 years ago serve as a model for Russia and Ukraine now? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly overcast and humid today with a high near 90. A heat advisory remains in effect through tonight. Still overcast tonight as temperatures fall to the low 70s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and will have a high in the mid-80s. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. More rain possible overnight and during the day on Sunday. Otherwise, we'll end the weekend with a cloudy day with a high in the low 80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. If you live in or around Lawrence joined WBUR journalists for a community listening session tomorrow. We want to know what ideas and issues are on your mind. To find out more, visit WBUR.org slash Lawrence. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From United Airlines, on a mission to do good in the air and committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, 
Learn more at united.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Leila Faudel. Each Friday this month, we're marking 20 years of StoryCorps. We're revisiting classic conversations from the past two decades and bringing you updates on the participants. Today, a 2007 recording from the StoryCorps September 11th initiative. It collects the stories of survivors, recovery workers, and family members who lost loved ones that day. Retired firefighter John Vigiano Sr. lost two sons in the attack on the World Trade Center. John Vigiano Jr. was a firefighter like his father. Joe Vigiano was a police detective. There were a couple of days each year you were allowed to take your children to work. And Joe loved it. That was his birthday present, that he would come and spend the night in the firehouse. We'd have a cake, and the guys I worked with, they would take a milk container, and they'd cut out the facsimile of a building, and they'd put it on the top of the cake, and then they would light it up. And they would tell Joe to put it out, and he would throw a pot of water on it. The birthday cake was a little soggy, but this is what he wanted. Joe started dating a young lady whose father was a police officer. And he come home one day and he says, I'm taking a police test. I says, Joe, you're only 17 years old. He says, ah, no big deal. On the other side of the room, my son John wanted nothing to do with police or fire department. He was going to make a million dollars and take care of his mother and father. But in 1984, I came down with throat cancer. He noticed then how my unit they took care of us. And he says, I'm going to become a fireman. I says, you're kidding me. Firemen don't make millions of dollars. How am I going to live like a king? But I was very happy, very proud. My father had been on the fire department, and he was the first one to be issued badge number 3436. And when John decided he wanted to be a firefighter, they reissued it to my son John. So the badge was only used by two. Both the boys uh, would call me when they were working, talk for a few minutes, and I'd say, all right, be careful, I love you. John would always call around 3.30, 4 o'clock, and that particular night, September 10th, I says, um, look out for your brother tonight. He'll be haunting the city. And he says, okay, I love you. I says, I love you. Joe called me in the morning and told me to turn on the television that a plane just hit the Trade Center. He says, I'm heading south on West Street. This is a big one. And I just said, you know, be careful. I love you. He said, I love you too. That was it. We had the boys for John for 36 years, Joe for 34 years, ironically. Badge number 3436. I don't have any could've, should've, or would'ves. I wouldn't have changed anything. There's not many people that the last words they said to their son or daughter was, I love you. And the last words they heard was, I love you. So that makes me sleep at night. We have five beautiful grandchildren five little munchkins that I see my sons in, in so many ways, looks, personality, amazing, they're amazing children. 
So we feel blessed. My name is Joseph Vigiano. I'm Detective Joseph Vigiano's son, and my grandfather was John Vigiano Sr. My grandfather passed five years ago. They were saying that the cancer that eventually took his life was related to the World Trade Center. He was down there for months with the recovery efforts, looking for my dad and uncle. But um, his legacy, I, I think he would want to be remembered as a, a good father. He had a firm understanding of service and sacrifice, and he would pass that on to us. Today, I'm a police officer with the emergency service unit, the same unit that my father was a member of. Originally, that wasn't the plan. Uh, I kind of wanted to grow up and be a paleontologist. <laughs> Favorite movie was Jurassic Park growing up. But um, after my father's passing, I was eight years old, and that sent me on my course where I am now. When I was in the police academy, I had requested to take my dad's PO shield, 19363. But unfortunately, it was already taken by an officer that was up in the Bronx. And when he found out that I had requested it, he willingly gave up that shield number and <laughs> let me have it. And then he took on a new one, you know, just a few years for his retirement. I mean, putting on that uniform and then seeing that th those numbers, it's, it's special. My mom also served in the New York City Police Department as a cop for 20 years. That's how she met my father. It's funny because I can drive home and call her on the phone and complain about things at work. And she understands it just as well as uh, the guys I sit with every day. My brother works in the 75th Precinct as well. And he actually has my mom's shield number. So it's heavyweight. People are looking at you to see, like, what is Vidge's kid doing? You know, because they have expectations. But everybody loved my grandfather. They loved my dad, you know, my uncle. And they were heroes. I mean, I wish my grandfather was still around to seek guidance from. I don't think jealousy is the right word, but the members of the fire department, they got to experience his leadership. I mean, that's a special thing. And as I get a little older, become a father, you know, I'm married now, you know, gaining experience through life and at home. I wish I had him to, you know, lean on a little bit. New York City police officer Joe Vigiano remembering his grandfather, retired firefighter John Vigiano Sr. StoryCorps is trying to record one interview for each life lost on September 11, 2001. Those conversations are archived at both the Library of Congress and at the National September 11 Memorial and Museum. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We hear how anti-hate activists are fighting back against neo-Nazi groups that are targeting immigrants in the Massachusetts shelter system. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. 
Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Climate change and China's growing influence are expected to be among the major issues at the G20 summit in India. President Biden is expected to arrive in New Delhi today ahead of the talks. Before they begin, the president is scheduled to hold a one-on-one meeting with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Charles Michel is president of the European Council. He believes this summit can produce results. I don't think that this G20 will resolve in two days all the problems of the world and all the changes of the world. But I think it can be a bold step in the right direction. China's President Xi Jinping is not attending the summit, nor is Russian President Vladimir Putin, as Russia's war in Ukraine moves through its 19th month. As efforts continue in Hawaii to recover from last month's deadly and destructive wildfires, there's a new problem for many, job losses. NPR's Adrian Florido says the tourism industry on Maui has collapsed in the aftermath of the fires. It's an unemployment crisis, and not just in the town of Lahaina where the fire was. All of Maui has seen this huge drop in tourism. Restaurants and hotels are pretty much empty. And so workers everywhere have been getting laid off or having their hours slashed. Thousands of people on Maui have filed for unemployment benefits since those fires. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A new $30 million environmental research center housed at UMass Amherst will focus on indigenous science. Karen Brown reports. The center will highlight the traditional knowledge of native tribes across the world to address climate-related problems in a way that Western science often misses. Center director Sonia Atalai is a member of the Anishinaabe Ojibwe tribe. She says one research project in the Pacific Northwest will focus on how native communities preserve clam gardens. They turn over the sediment. They do a selective clam harvest. They return the actual clam shell to the beach. It's this way of thinking about caring for the environment, caring for food, that's kind of cyclical. Other projects will look at how land and water resources are affected by climate change, impact on indigenous cultural sites, and food systems. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. A California man sold misbranded drugs to online customers in Massachusetts. The 36-year-old pleaded guilty this week to smuggling the substances into the U.S. from China, as well as intent to defraud customers. He claimed the drugs could improve mood and cognitive functioning. The charges could result in jail time and thousands of dollars in fines. The New England Patriots open their new season this Sunday. They'll host the Philadelphia Eagles in Foxborough. WBOR's Dan Guzman has a preview. The team is committed to Mac Jones at quarterback in his third season with the Pats. They made it clear by getting rid of his backups in the last round of roster cuts. Despite the retirement of Devin McCourty, Jones will be well covered with a defensive line that remains largely unchanged. The Pats went 8-9 and a year ago and just missed the playoffs. ESPN's Mike Reese expects them to be on the fringe of the playoff hunt again. I think they'll be a better team this year. I think the problem for the Patriots is the competition around them is going to be better as well. The Patriots will honor longtime quarterback Tom Brady in a ceremony at halftime during the home opener. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. It's 833. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The Red Sox take on the Baltimore Orioles tonight. It's the first of three games at Fenway Park. First pitch is scheduled for 7:10. Mostly cloudy and near 90 today, but it'll feel much hotter with the humidity. Tonight it falls to the low 70s. Tomorrow still mostly overcast with temperatures in the mid 80s. Showers and thunderstorms are possible. We may see heavy rain overnight and showers and thunderstorms are likely on Sunday. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Sucking carbon dioxide out of the sky is moving from science fiction to reality. For years, this was seen as a long-shot sort of thing, too hard and too expensive. But now people are spending billions of dollars to scale up this technology. And controversially, one company at the heart of this shift is an American oil company. NPR's Camila Domanowski has been reporting on this. Good morning. Good morning, Daniel. What is this technology? Yeah, we're talking about machines that extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, from the air we breathe. Think giant fans, chemical reactions, you suck the carbon out of the sky and then store it underground. This takes a ton of energy, all right? It's not easy. But climate groups say that we are now so far behind on climate goals that this technology will be essential. And that is on top of restoring forests and mangroves and improving agricultural practices and crucially cutting the use of oil. So if we also need to cut oil production, why is an oil company playing a key role here? Yeah, so Occidental Petroleum, a big American oil company, they are really good at a kind of oil production that involves injecting CO2 underground to squeeze more oil out of old wells. So when they heard about this technology to pull carbon out of the sky, they thought, wait, this could work for us. They plan to put some carbon underground just to store it. Companies in the government will pay for that. But they also plan to use some of that carbon to make more oil. Here's Oxy's CEO, Vicki Holub. It's really going to take oil to be produced for decades to come. And if it's produced in the way that I'm talking about, there's no reason not to produce oil and gas forever. Wow. Okay, wait, let me get this straight. An oil company that profits off of releasing carbon dioxide in the air is also going to be profiting from sucking it out of the air. Is that right? That's their plan. Yeah. I imagine climate advocates are not very happy about that. Well, it depends. Oxy's expertise could scale this technology up and bring costs down. And so some groups say they welcome that. But that argument that Holub just made, that this could justify using oil for longer, that is not what climate groups say we need to do as a planet at all. And so lots of advocates are worried that this could be a distraction that's used to avoid doing much cheaper, really effective and essential things like building clean energy. So 
Billions of dollars are pouring into this tech. Oxy's deeply involved. But there's this really fundamental disagreement between Oxy and other groups about what we should be using it for. How concerned should we be about this development? The worst case scenario is obviously really grim, right? The idea that this could derail progress on cutting emissions. What I found interesting reporting on this is that even people who are optimistic about it, there's a lot of despair. I I spoke to Jennifer Wilcox, who's at the Department of Energy. She supports these kinds of projects. She told me this. I think if we looked back a decade ago when I first started in this field, we didn't need direct air capture. That is, everyone believed that we could simply cut emissions by enough. And then we didn't. As for the participation of the oil and gas industry, she says. We can't do this without them. You know, we can fight. Fighting is what we did over a decade ago, and look where we are, right? That fight of leave it in the ground, we're not going to win, okay? Some climate advocates strongly disagree with her there, but she's not alone in this. Several proponents of direct air capture told me very similar things, that they see the surge of investment in this technology as a climate win and also as a sign of failure because they only think we need it at all because we didn't cut emissions sooner. NPR's Camila Dominoski, thanks. Thanks. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spent two days in Ukraine this week announcing more aid and long-term support. He ventured out of the capital yesterday to see how Ukrainians are trying to rebuild. NPR's Michelle Kellerman brings us this story. Everything started on the March 3rd, 2022. A couple of hours from Kyiv in a small town called Yahidne, a man who was held hostage in a basement for a month tells a harrowing tale. There were over a hundred villagers crammed in a school storage room, and Valery Pohoy says he pleaded with the Russian guards for fresh air. And we're telling you, person is going to die right now, very soon. And they say, okay, let, let him or her die. Secretary Blinken looked somber as he spoke outside the rundown schoolhouse. And this is just one building in one village, in one community in Ukraine. And this is a story that we've seen again and again and again. The hostage ordeal in Yahidne was at the start of the war. The Russians continue to launch attacks on civilians, striking a market just this week. A market? For what? This is what Ukrainians are living with every day. This is what is happening here every day. As the war drags on, some in Washington have been raising concerns about the price tag of U.S. support. So part of Blinken's mission was to try to put a human face on the conflict. He met with border guards and he visited with workers clearing mines and unexploded munitions left behind by Russian troops. We really admire what you're doing. What they're doing is trying to clear a field that was filled with Russian artillery shells on a farm that once employed over 300 people and produced corn for export. Secretary Blinken says it's vital to get farms like this back in business. So the work you're doing is saving lives in Ukraine, it's saving livelihoods in Ukraine, and it's helping uh, once again to feed the world. He announced another $90 million in support for demining, part of a new billion-dollar aid package for Ukraine. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleva, is counting on that continued support. He remembers calling Blinken last year, asking him to encourage American businesses to reopen, starting with McDonald's. Having McDonald's in, in the country is a message 
is a message of confidence, is a message of trust. Lieba brought the secretary to check it out, ordering cherry pie while Blinken munched on a few French fries. It was a brief light moment in a country at war. U.S. officials say they think Ukraine is making progress on the battlefield, but it is a tough slog. And Blinken's trip was bookmarked with air raid sirens right before he arrived and after his train left Kyiv. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News. Coming up tomorrow on Weekend Edition, actors and writers in Hollywood are still on strike. How is that affecting other workers in the film and TV industry? Scott Simon speaks to two of them. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR on a Friday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report has a preview of the G20 summit happening this weekend in New Delhi. President Biden and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will be there, but China's President Xi Jinping won't, and that has significant economic implications. Partly sunny with temperatures near 90 today. That, given the humidity, will feel like the upper 90s. It'll be mostly cloudy. Tonight, mostly overcast and temperatures fall to the low 70s. Saturday, mostly cloudy and mid to upper 80s with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Sunday, low 80s and mostly cloudy again with thunderstorms likely. Those may produce heavy rain. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Watertown-based Mariana Oncology is getting funding to bring one of its drugs to human clinical trials. The $175 million will be used for Mariana's small cell lung cancer drug. The company says some of the funds will also be used for hiring. The CEO of Cambridge-based Marsana Therapeutics is stepping down. CEO Anna Protopapis says she's retiring on Sunday. The chief medical officer and chief people officer are also stepping down amid a failed clinical trial for an ovarian cancer drug. That failure caused the company to lay off half its workforce earlier this year. Cambridge-based Biogen will use a $1.5 billion loan to fund its acquisition of a drug company. Biogen is in the midst of acquiring Riata Pharmaceuticals. The acquisition comes amid what the company is calling a redesign. It's laying off 1,000 workers in an effort to save $700 million. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Immigrants in the Massachusetts family shelter system have become targets for a hate group. 
Members of a neo-Nazi group have demonstrated outside several hotels where the state is renting rooms for homeless families. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, now anti-hate groups are mobilizing to support the new arrivals. And a quick warning here, this story begins with sound from one of the demonstrations. Around 8 p.m. on Saturday, some two dozen people marched toward a hotel in Marlboro. It's dark, they're wearing black shirts and masks, there are flares burning, and they start chanting, Refugees, go home. Refugees, go home! Refugees, go home! This video was captured by an onlooker and posted on social media. Officials have identified the group as NSC 131, a neo Nazi organization. This isn't their first anti-immigrant protest outside a family shelter. Members of the same hate group were at hotels in Woburn a few weeks ago. I'm afraid, says a mother who witnessed one of the incidents. Marie says she's shaking just recalling it. She says her children can't even go out and play in the parking lot because she's afraid. We're not using her full name because she's worried the people in masks will return. I don't doubt for one minute we're going to see the group again and maybe different groups. Marlboro's mayor, Arthur Vigent, says his police force is working to keep tabs on what's happening, particularly at the shelter locations where immigrant families are staying. I wouldn't say it's high alert, but we've increased patrols down at the hotels. Some experts who study white supremacists argue that's not enough. Christopher Goldsmith is with Task Force Butler, a veterans group pushing for prosecution of organizations like NSC 131. Their stated mission is to commit genocide and to purge New England from people of color, from Jewish people, from the LGBTQ community. This group originated in Massachusetts. Goldsmith says its messaging on social media has increasingly focused on family shelters and emphasized that many residents are black and immigrants. They are signaling to other white supremacists that this is the location that you should target. Several religious and cultural organizations formed a task force to protect immigrant families. Within 24 hours, over 80 groups had signed on. Cindy Rowe runs the Jewish Alliance for Law and Social Action. Along with the Anti-Defamation League of New England, she's spearheaded this effort. She's confident the vast majority of residents see immigrants as good for Massachusetts. It's wonderful for us in, in terms of a state that needs a broader workforce. They want to contribute back to our community. They want to have thriving lives for themselves and their families. But Mayor Vigent of Marlboro says it's not that simple. There are limited resources. And he says Massachusetts is the only state in the country with a law guaranteeing families a right to shelter. He wants lawmakers to repeal the law. we got to help the people we have here first. And there's always going to be opportunities to help others. But we are having a housing crisis here as it is. This year, the state-funded family shelter system has expanded at a rapid rate, partly because of newly arrived immigrant families, many from Haiti. More than 2,500 families are in overflow hotel and motel units scattered across the Commonwealth. Haitian community leader Jafor Florissé thinks it would be safer to place Haitian families near the Haitian community, where they'll find support. They can definitely partner with some hotels in the greater Boston areas, by placing those families near their communities, that would be one of the solutions. 
Another solution he'd like to see? Alert local law enforcement to shelter locations. Right now, that doesn't always happen. The state attorney general's office says it is concerned about hate incidents, but it can't confirm or deny any investigations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the heaviest rainstorm to hit Hong Kong in 140 years. And Ukrainian officials are calling local elections being held in Russian occupied areas a sham. It's 8.50. On last week's Wait Wait, Josh Gondelman was not too impressed with the idea of official New York City rat tours. As a New Yorker, I feel like rats, oh, that's the tourist thing. You want a real New York experience, go see the roaches. That's yeah. Right. I'm Peter Sago. When you listen to this week's news quiz, don't turn on the lights. We might all scurry away. Join us for the news quiz that observes all kinds of creatures in their natural habitat. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. President Joe Biden arrives in India today for the G20 summit. The Florida State Supreme Court takes up arguments in an abortion rights case that could limit access to the procedure. And a federal appeals court has issued a temporary stay allowing the state of Texas to keep floating barriers in the Rio Grande River in place for now. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. Thefreedomtrail.org. And Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. Mostly cloudy today, near 90. Tonight, low 70s. Saturday, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, otherwise mostly cloudy and in the upper 80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. A renewed concern for financial and business players today. How will trade tensions between the U.S. and China hit bottom lines? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio. Apple's stock price has fallen 6.5% over two days amid published reports China is banning iPhones for more government employees there. And stocks and other companies that feed Apple are also getting hit now. Plus, this morning, there's news China may be expanding iPhone restrictions. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Japanese financial newspaper Nikkei says China is expanding its iPhone restrictions to include not just central government employees, but also workers in local government and state-owned businesses. This could hurt Apple's iPhone sales in its fastest-growing market. Bank of America estimates that Chinese central government workers alone account for 5 to 10 million iPhones sold each year.
The new restrictions coincide with the launch of a direct iPhone competitor made by China's flagship smartphone company Huawei. Its newly released models appear to rival or surpass iPhones in network speed, suggesting China is catching up on advanced chip technology despite U.S. curbs on exports of those technologies. China has bristled at those curbs, and they remain a key point of contention between the two countries. Apple, caught in the middle, lost nearly $200 billion in market value over the last two days. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. In pre-market trading now, Apple stock has stabilized. Stock index futures are all up slightly. How's biz? The Institute for Supply Management asked service sector companies that, using a more formal formulation of the question, and people running service sector companies are generally feeling quite upbeat on matters like finding people to hire, input costs, even interest rates. But they're especially jazzed by strong customer demand. Marketplace's Justin Ho has that. The first half of the year was difficult for Heather Whaling's PR company called Gebin Communication. Whaling says many of her clients were worried about a possible recession. Clients were hesitant to sign long-term work. They were opting for shorter-term or smaller projects. But that recession never happened. Now, Whaling says her clients want long-term work and bigger projects. It feels like the fear of the recession that was driving the beginning of the year has mostly passed, and we've entered this new phase of cautious optimism. In Baltimore, Steve Chu is feeling better about business conditions, too. He runs a sandwich restaurant called Ekiben, and he says costs have gone up. But the big factor keeping the business afloat, his customers have disposable income, and they want to come in and buy sandwiches. We're lucky we're in the food industry, and we're able to you know, help relieve some stress out of like a long day. Chu says his business conditions will stay good as long as the job market is strong. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. There's news the Kroger supermarket chain has reached a deal to pay $1.2 billion to settle opioid claims. Kroger groceries often have pharmacies. The money goes to states and tribes. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden password manager enables employees to securely access logins and sensitive information all in one place. Learn more at bitwarden.com. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. The G20 summit is happening this weekend in New Delhi. President Biden and Treasury Secretary Yellen are both attending the meeting of this, these major economies. They'll be joined by leaders from Britain, Canada, Germany, Japan, and South Korea. Not going, Russia's Vladimir Putin and China's Xi Jinping. For more, let's get Jennifer on the line from Shanghai. Marketplace of China correspondent Jennifer Pack. Hey there. Hey, David. Let's focus on China's president, Xi. He leads the world's second largest economy. This is the first time China's president is set to miss a G20 summit since, I think, 2008. What's the explanation? Uh, we don't have one, but the Chinese Foreign Ministry has just announced that China's number two, Premier Li Chang, will be attending the G20 instead. It does stick out, though. President Xi did go to the recent BRICS summit, the economic group that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Any, I don't know, guesses about why President Xi is skipping this one? Well, these are just guesses, but some say maybe China's economy is in such bad shape that President Xi has to focus more on that. 
Others say it could be geopolitical. China sees a new world order. It's developing nations, and the West is less important. Maybe China has a problem with the host of the G20, India, because the two countries have a dispute over the border, and that spilled into the tech sphere. Although China's foreign ministry has outright refuted this, saying China is happy for India to host, and that it sees the G20 as a very important economic forum. Very important, but not quite important enough for the president to show up. But Jennifer, tell me more about why this would be significant if she doesn't go. Well, for two reasons. First, bilaterally for the U.S., it means that President Biden won't really have a chance to bump into President Xi Jinping, even though the two were not meant to meet one on one. On a global scale, it matters because the goal of the G20 summit is to have better international economic cooperation. So China needs to be a part of that. I know, but the thing is under. China's President Xi, key economic data sets like be interesting to know about youth unemployment or consumer confidence. Those surveys don't come out anymore in China. That's right, and this comes at a time when Chinese officials say they want more foreign investment. But in order for that to happen, you need transparency and information. Information you are getting a lot less of, either officially or through events at the G20. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. Thank you. Thanks, David. And there are heat advisories again today, covering a long swath from the Northeast to Texas and beyond. In Texas, there's renewed worry today about the power grid there, strained by all the ACs going, and authorities watching with the hope they don't have to order any rolling blackouts. The Texas grid, as we were reminded during the deadly winter storm of 2021, is constructed as a kind of island to itself. Predicted highs today: Laredo 106, Houston 105, Lubbock 102. And in the New York City subway yesterday afternoon, felt like 196. At least it was wet heat. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer Jordan Mangi. Engineers Jess and Duller and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio with Marketplace Morning Report. We're from APM American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England. Inviting you to spend time with New England storytellers this fall. Tour their 38 historic house museums, visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.